Chapter 3 of The Curse of Karn's Hold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Walker. The Curse of Karn's Hold by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 3 Two Quarrels. Three days later, the shooting party assembled. Several gentlemen came to stay at the house, while Ronald Mervyn and his party, of course, put up at Mervyn Hall. The shooting was very successful, and the party were well pleased with their visit. Reginald Carne was quiet and courteous to his guests, generally accompanying them through the day, though he did not himself carry a gun. After the first day's shooting there was a dinner party at Mervyn Hall, and the following evening there was one at the hold. Lieutenant Golston enjoyed himself more than anyone else, though he was one of the least successful of the sportsmen, missing easy shots in a most unaccountable manner, and seeming to take but moderate interest in the shooting. He had, very shortly after arriving at the house, come to the conclusion that the doctor was altogether mistaken, and that Reginald Carne showed no signs whatever of being in any way different from other men. The doctor is so accustomed to us sailors, he said to himself, that if a man is quiet and studious, he begins to fancy directly there must be something queer about him. That is always the way with doctors who make madness a special study. They suspect everyone they come across of being out of their mind. I shouldn't be at all surprised if he doesn't fancy I am correct myself. The idea is perfectly absurd. I watched Carn closely at dinner, and no one could have been more pleasant and gentlemanly than he was. I expect Mackenzie must have heard a word let drop about this old story, and of course if he did he would set down Carn at once as being insane. Well, thank goodness that's off my mind. It's been worrying me horribly for the last few days. I have been a fool to trouble myself so about Mackenzie's croakings, but now I will not think anything more about it. On the following Sunday, as Ruth Powlett was returning from church in the morning and was passing through the little wood that lay between Carnesford and the hold, there was a rustle among the trees, and George Forrester sprang out suddenly. "'I have been waiting since daybreak to see you, Ruth, but as you came with that old housekeeper I could not speak to you. I have been in Plymouth for the last week. I hear that they are after me for that skirmish with the keepers, so I am going away for a bit. But I couldn't go till I said good-bye to you first, and heard you promise that you would always be faithful to me. I will say good-bye, George, and my thoughts and prayers will always be with you, but I cannot promise to be faithful. Not in the way you mean. "'What do you mean, Ruth?' he asked angrily. "'Do you mean that after all these years you are going to throw me off?' Ruth was about to reply when there was a slight rustling in the bushes. "'There is someone in the path in the wood.' George Forrester listened for a moment. "'It's only a rabbit,' he said impatiently. "'Never mind that now, but answer my question. "'Do you dare to tell me that you are going to throw me over?' "'I'm not going to throw you off, George,' she said quietly. "'But I am going to give you up.' I have tried, oh, how hard I have tried, to believe that you would be better some day, but I can't hope so any longer. You have promised again and again that you would give up drinking, but you are always breaking your promise, and now I find that in spite of all I have said, you still hold with these bad men at Dareport, and you have taken to poaching, and now they are in search of you for being one of those concerned in desperately wounding John Morton. No, George, I have for years withstood even my father. I have loved you in spite of his reproaches and entreaties, but I feel now that instead of your making me happy, I should be utterly miserable if I married you, and I have made a promise to Miss Carne that I would give you up. Oh, she's been meddling, has she? George Forrester said with a terrible imprecation. I will have revenge on her, I swear I will. 
So it's she who has done the mischief and made you false to all you promised. Curse you with your smooth face and your church-going ways and your canting lies. You think, now they are hunting me away, you can take up with someone else, but you shan't. I swear, though I swing for it. And he grasped her suddenly by the throat. But at this moment there was a sound of voices in the road behind them, and dashing Ruth to the ground with a force that stunned her, he sprang into the woods. A minute later the stableman at the hold came along the road and found Ruth still lying on the ground. After a minute's consultation, they determined to carry her down to her father's house, as they had no idea what was the best course to pursue to bring her round. Two of them, therefore, lifted and carried her down, while the other hurried on to prepare the miller for their arrival. "'Master Powlett,' he said as he entered, "'your girl has hurt herself. "'I expect she slipped on a stone somehow, going up the hill, and came down heavy. "'Anyhow, we found her lying there insensible, and my two mates are bringing her down. "'We saw her two or three hundred yards ahead of us as we came out of the churchyard, "'so she could not have laid there above a minute or so when we came up.' "'Ruth was brought in. "'Mrs. Powlett had not yet returned from Dareport, "'but a neighbour was soon fetched in by one of the men, while another went for the doctor, "'and in a few minutes... Ruth opened her eyes. "'Don't talk, dear,' her father said. "'Lie quiet for a few minutes, and you will soon be better. "'You slipped down in the road, you know, and gave yourself a shake, but it will be all right now.' Ruth closed her eyes again and lay quiet for a short time. Then she looked up again and tried to sit up. "'I am better now, father.' "'Thank God for that, Ruth. It gave me a turn when I saw you carried in here. "'I can tell you. But lie still a little time longer. The doctor will be here in a few minutes.' I don't want him, father. Yes, you do, my dear, and anyhow, as he has been sent for, he must come and see you. You need not trouble about going up to the hold. It was three of the men that found you that brought you here. I will send a note by them to Miss Carne telling her you had a bad fall, and that we will keep you here until tomorrow morning. I am sure you will not be fit to walk up that hill again today. Anyhow, we will wait until the doctor comes and hear what he says. Ten minutes later, the doctor arrived, and after hearing Hiram's account of what had happened, felt Ruth's pulse, and then examined her head. Ah, here's where you fell, he said. A good deal of swelling, and it has cut the skin. However, a little bathing with warm water is all that is wanted. There, now, stand up if you can and walk a step or two, and tell me if you feel any pain anywhere else. Ah, nowhere except in the shoulder. Move your arm. Ah, that is all right. Nothing broken. You will find you are bruised a good deal, I have no doubt. Well, you must keep on the sofa all day and not do any talking. You have had a severe shake, that's evident, and must take care of yourself for a day or two. You have lost all your color, and your pulse is unsteady and your heart beating anyhow. You must keep her quiet, Hiram. If I were you, I would get her up to bed. Of course, you must not let her talk, and I don't want any talking going on around her, you understand? Hiram did understand, and before Mrs. Powlett returned from chapel, Ruth, with the assistance of the woman who had come in, was in bed. "'I look upon it as judgment,' Mrs. Powlett said upon her return, when she heard the particulars. "'If she had been with me at the chapel, this never would have happened. It's a message to her that no good can come of her sitting under that blind guide, the parson. I hope it will open her eyes and that she will be led to join the fold.' "'I don't think it is likely, Hesba,' Hiram said quietly and you will find it hard to persuade her that loose stone I suppose she trod on was dropped special into the road to trip her up in coming from church. Anyhow, you can't talk about it today. The doctor's orders are that she is to be kept perfectly quiet, that she is not to talk herself, and there's to be no talking in the room. 
He says she can have a cup of tea if she can take it, but I doubt at present whether she can take even that. The poor child looks as if she could scarce open her eyes for anything, and no wonder, for the doctor says she must have fallen tremendous heavy. Mrs. Powlett made the tea and took it upstairs. Any ideas she may have had of improving the occasion, in spite of the doctor's injunctions, vanished when she saw Ruth's white face on the pillow. Noiselessly, she placed the little table close to the bed and put the cup upon it. Ruth opened her eyes as she did so. Here is some tea, dearie, Hesba said softly. I will put it down here, and you, you can drink it when you feel inclined. Ruth murmured, thank you, and Hesba scooped over and kissed her cheek more softly than she had ever done before, and then went quietly out of the room again. She looks worse than I thought for, Hiram, she said as she proceeded to help the little servant they kept lay the cloth for dinner. I doubt she's more hurt than the doctor thinks. I could see there were tears on her cheek, and Ruth was never one to cry, not when she was hurt ever so much. Of course, it may be because she is low and weak. Still, I tell you that I don't like it. Is the doctor coming again? Yes. He said he would look in again this evening. I don't like it, Hesba repeated, and after dinner I will put on my bonnet and go down to the doctor myself and hear what he has got to say about her. Perhaps he will tell me more than he would you. He knows what poor creatures men are. They just get frightened out of what wits they've got. If you let on anyone's bad, but I will get it out of him. It frets me to think I wasn't here when she was brought in, instead of having strangers messing about her. It came into Hiram's mind to retort that her being away at the moment was a special warning against her going to Dareport, but the low, troubled voice in which she spoke, and the furtive passing of her hand across her cheek to brush away a tear, effectually silenced him. It was all so unusual in the case of Hesba, whom, indeed, he had never seen so soft and womanly since the first day she had crossed the threshold of the house that he was at once touched and alarmed. "'I hope you are wrong, wife. I hope you are wrong,' he said, putting his hand on her shoulder. "'I don't think the doctors thought badly of it, but he seemed to puzzled like, I thought. But if there's trouble, Hesba, we will bear it together, you and I. It's sent for good. We both know that. We goes the same way, you know, wife. If we don't go by the same road—' The woman made no answer but at that moment the girl appeared with dinner. Hesba ate but a few mouthfuls, and then, saying sharply that she had no appetite, rose from the table, put on her bonnet and shawl, and without a word, walked out. She was away longer than Hiram expected, and in the meantime he had to answer the questions of many of the neighbors, who, having heard from the woman who had been called in of Ruth's accident, came to learn the particulars. When Hesba returned, she brought a bundle with her. The doctor's coming in an hour, she said. I didn't get much out of him, except he said it had been a shock to her system, and he was afraid there might be a slight concussion of the brain. He said if that was so, we should want some ice to put to her head, and I have been up to the hold and seen Miss Carne. I had heard Ruth say they always have ice up there, and she has given me some. She was just coming down to inquire about Ruth, but of course I told her she couldn't talk to nobody. That was the doctor's orders. Has she moved since I have been away? Hiram shook his head. I have been up twice, but she was just lying with her eyes closed. Well, I will go and sit up there, Hespa said. Tell that girl if she makes any noise, out of the house she goes, and the best thing you can do is to take your pipe and sit in that arbor outside, or walk up and down if you can't keep yourself warm. And don't let anyone come knocking at that door and worrying her. 
It will be worse for them if I has to come down. Hiram Powlett obeyed his wife's parting injunction and kept on guard all the afternoon, being absent from his usual place in church for the first time for years. In the evening there was nothing for him to do in the house, and, his wife being upstairs, he followed his usual custom of dropping for a half an hour into the snuggery of the Carn Arms. Yes, it's true, he said in answer to the questions of his cronies. Ruth has had a bad fall, and the doctor this afternoon says she has got a slight concussion of the brain. He said he hoped she would get over it, but he looked serious-like when he came downstairs. It's a bad affair, I expect. But she is in God's hands, and a better girl never stepped, though I says it. There was a murmur of regret and consolation among the three smokers, but they saw that Hiram was too upset for many words, and the conversation turned into other else for a time, Hiram taking no share in it, but smoking silently. It's a rum thing, he said presently, during a pause in the conversation, that a man don't really know about a woman's nature, not when he has lived with her for years and years. Now there's my wife Hesba, who has got a tongue as sharp as any one in this village. A momentary smile passed round the circle, for the sharpness of Hesba Powlett's tongue was notorious. It scarce seemed to me, neighbors, as she has got a soft side to her that she cared more for Ruth than she did for the house-dog. She always did her duty by her, I will say that for her, and a tidier woman and a better housewife there ain't in the country, round, but duty is one thing and love is another. Now you would hardly believe it, but I do think that Hesba feels this business as much as I do. You wouldn't have known her if she goes about the house with her shoes off as quiet as a mouse, and she speaks that soft and gentle that you wouldn't know it was her. Women's queer creatures anyway. There was a chorus of assent to that proposition, and, in fact, the discovery that Hesba Powlett had a soft side to her nature was astonishing indeed. For three days Ruth Powlett lay unconscious, and then quiet and good nursing, and the ice on her head had their effect. And one evening the doctor, on visiting her, said that he thought a change had taken place and that she was now sleeping naturally. The next morning there was a consciousness in her eyes when she opened them, and she looked in surprise at the room darkened by a curtain pinned across the window and at Hesba, sitting by her bedside with a huge nightcap on her head. "'What is it, mother? What has happened?' "'You have been ill, Ruth, but thank God you are better now. Don't talk, dear, and don't worry. I've got some beef tea warming by the fire. The doctor said you were to try and drink a cup when you woke, and then to go off to sleep again.' Ruth looked with feeble surprise after Hesba as she left the room, missing the sharp, decisive foot-tread. In a minute, she returned as noiselessly as she has gone. Can you hold the cup yourself, Ruth, or shall I feed you? Ruth put out her hand, but it was too weak to hold the cup. She was able, however, slightly to raise her head, and Hesba held the cup to her lips. What have you done to your feet, mother? she asked, as she finished the broth. I have left my shoes downstairs, Ruth. The doctor said you were to be kept quiet. Now try to go to sleep, that's a dear. She stooped and kissed the girl affectionately, and Ruth, to her surprise, felt a teardrop on her cheek. She was wondering over the strange circumstance when she again fell asleep. In a few days she was about the house again, but she was silent and grave, and did not gain strength as fast as the doctor had hoped for. However, in three weeks' time she was well enough to return to the hold. Hiram had strongly remonstrated against her doing so, but she seemed to th set her mind upon it, urging that she would be better for having something to think about and do than in remain idle at home and as the doctor was also of opinion that the change would be rather likely to benefit than do her harm, Hiram gave way. The day before she left, she said to her father, 
do you know whether george forrester has been caught or whether he has got away he has not been caught ruth but i don't think he has gone away there is talk in the village that he has been hiding down at dareport and the constable has gone over there several times but he can't find signs of him i think he must be mad to stay so near when he knows he is wanted i can't think what is keeping him i have made up my mind father to give him up you have been right and i know now he would not make me a good husband but please don't say anything against him it is hard enough as it is hiram kissed his daughter thank god for that news ruth i hoped after that poaching business you would see it in that light and that he wasn't fit for a mate for one like you your mother will be glad child she ain't like the same woman as she was is she no indeed father i do not seem to know her i don't know as i was ever so knocked over in my life as i was yesterday ruth when your mother came downstairs in her bonnet and shawl and said i am going to church with you hiram i didn't open my lips until we were half way and then she said as how it had been borne in on her as how her not being here when he was brought in was a judgment on her for being away at dareport instead of being at church with us and she said more than that as how now she thought over it she saw as she hadn't done right by me and you all these years and hoped to make a better wife what time she was left to us i wasn't sure at church time as it wasn't a dream to see her sitting there beside me and joining in the hymns listening attentive to the parson as she has always been running down she said on the way home she felt just as she did when she was a girl five and twenty years ago and used to come here to church i took up with the methodies ruth kissed her father then my fall has done good after all she said it makes me happy to know it i shall be happy when i see you quite yourself again ruth come back to us soon dear i will father in the spring i will come home again for good i promise you and so ruth returned for a time to the hold i am glad you are back again ruth miss carne who had been down several times to see her said i told you not to hurry yourself and i would have done without you for another month but you know i am really very glad to have you back again mary managed my hair very well but i could not talk to her as i do to you ruth had not been many hours in the house before she learnt from her fellow-servants that mr gulston had been over two or three times since the shooting party and that the servants in general had an opinion that he came over to see miss carne it is easy to see that with half an eye one of the girls said and i think miss margaret likes him too and no wonder for a properer looking man is not to be seen but i always thought she would have married her cousin everyone has thought so for years it's much better she should take the sailor gentleman one of the elder women said i am not saying anything against mr ronald who is as nice a young gentleman as one would want to see but he is her cousin and i don't hold to marriages among cousins anyhow and especially in a family like ours i think it is better for us not to talk about it at all ruth said quietly i don't think it right and proper and it will be quite enough to talk about miss margaret's affairs when we know she is engaged the others were silent for a minute after ruth's remark and then the under housemaid who had been an old playmate of ruth's said you never have ideas like other people ruth powlett it is a funny thing that we can't say a word about the people in the house without being snapped up ruth is right the other said and your tongue runs too fast jane as ruth says it will be quite time enough to talk when miss margaret is engaged till then the least said the better in truth lieutenant gulston had been several times at the hold and his friend the doctor seeing his admonition had been altogether thrown away avoided the subject but from his gravity of manner showed that he had not forgotten it and he shook his head sadly when one afternoon the lieutenant had obtained leave until the following day i wish i had never spoken 
Had I not been an old fool that I should have known well enough that he was fairly taken by her. We have sailed together for twelve years, and now there is an end to our friendship. I hope that will be all, and that he will not have reason to be sorry he did not take my advice and drop it in time. Of course, she may have escaped, and I think that she has done so, but it's a terrible risk, terrible. I would give a year's pay that it shouldn't have happened. An hour before Lieutenant Golston left his ship, Ronald Mervyn had started for the hold. A word that had been said by a young officer of the flagship who was dining at mess had caught his ears. It was concerning his first lieutenant. He's got quite a fishing mania at present, and twice a week he goes off for the day to some place twenty miles away. Carnesford, I think it is. He does not seem to have much luck. Anyhow, he never brings any fish home. He's an awfully good fellow, Golston, the best first lieutenant I ever sailed with by a long way. What Ronald Mervyn heard was not pleasant to him. He had noticed the attentions Golston had paid to Margaret Carn at the ball, and he had been by no means pleased at meeting him, instilled at the hold with some shooting party, and the thought that he had been twice a week over in that neighborhood caused an angry surprise. The next morning, therefore, he telegraphed home for a horse to meet him at the station, and started as soon as lunch was over. He stayed half an hour at home, for his house lay on the road between the station and Carn's hold. The answer he received from his sister to a question he put, did not add to his good temper. Oh, yes, Mr. Golston had called to a day or two after he had been to the shooting party, and they had heard he had been at the hold several times since. When he arrived there, Ronald found that Margaret and her brother were both in the drawing-room, and he stood chatting with them there for some time, or rather chatting with Margaret, for Reginald was dull and moody. At last, the latter sauntered away. What's the matter with you, sir? Margaret said to her cousin. You don't seem to be quite yourself. Is it the weather? Reginald is duller and more silent than usual. He has hardly spoken a word today. No, it's not the weather, he replied sharply. I want to ask you a question, Margaret. Well, if you ask it civilly, the girl replied, I will answer it, but certainly not otherwise. I hear that that sailor fellow has been coming here several times. What does it mean? Margaret Carne threw back her head haughtily. What do you mean, Ronald, by speaking in that tone? Are you out of your mind? Not more than the family in general, he replied grimly, but you have not answered my question. I have not asked Lieutenant Golston what he comes here for, she said coldly, and besides, I do not recognize your right to ask me such a question. Not recognize my right, he repeated passionately. I should have thought that a man had every right to ask such a question of the woman he is going to marry. Going to marry, she repeated scornfully. At any rate, this is the first I have heard of it. It has always been a settled thing, he said, and you know it as well as I do. You promised me ten years ago that you would be my wife some day. Ten years ago I was a child. Ronald, how can you talk like this? You know we have always been as brother and sister together. I have never thought of anything else of late. You have been home four or five months anyhow, and you have had plenty of time to speak if you wanted to. You never said a word to lead me to believe that you thought of me in any other way than as a cousin. I thought we understood each other, Margaret. I thought so, too, the girl replied, but not in the same way. Oh, Ronald, don't say this. We have always been such friends, and perhaps years ago I might have thought it would be something more. But since then I have grown up and grown wiser, and even if I had loved you in the way you speak of, I would not have married you, because I am sure it would be bad for us both. We have both that terrible curse in our blood, and if there was not another man in the world, I would not marry you. I don't believe you would have said so a month ago, Ronald Mervyn said, looking darkly at her. The Golston has come between us, that's what it is, and you cannot deny it. You are not behaving like a gentleman, Ronald, the girl said quietly. 
you have no right to say such things i have a right to say anything he burst out you have fooled me and spoiled my life but you shall regret it you think after all these years i am to be thrown by like an old glove no by heaven you may throw me over but i swear you shall never marry this sailor or any one else whatever i do to prevent it you say i have the curse of the cons in my blood you are right and you shall have cause to regret it he leapt from the window which margaret had thrown open a short time before for the fire had overheated the room ran to the stables leapt on his horse and rode off at a furious pace neither he nor margaret had noticed that a moment before a man passed along the wall close under the window it was lieutenant gulston he paused for a moment as he heard his name uttered in angry tones opened the hall door without ceremony and hurried towards that of the drawing-room reginald carne was standing close to it and it flashed across gulston's mind that he had been listening he turned his head at the sailor's quick step don't go in there just at present gulston i fancy margaret is having a quarrel with her cousin they are quiet now and we had best leave them alone he was using very strong language the sailor said hotly i caught a word or two as i passed the windows it's a family failing i fancy he has gone now i will go in and see i think it were best for you to walk off for a few minutes and then come back again people may quarrel with their relatives you know but they don't often care for other people to be behind the scenes no you are quite right gulston answered the fact is for a moment i was fairly frightened by the violence of his tone and really feared that he was going to do something violent it was foolish of course and i really beg your pardon yes what you say is right if you will allow me i will have the horse put in the trap again i got out at the gate and walked across the garden telling the man to take the horse straight round to the stables but i think i had better go and come again another day after such a scene as she has gone through miss carne will not care about having a stranger here no i don't think that would be best reginald carne said she would wonder why you did not come and would likely enough hear from her maid that you had been and gone away again and might guess you had heard something of their talking no i think you had better do as i said go away and come back again in a few minutes the lieutenant accordingly went out and walked about the shrubbery for a short time and then returned miss carne did not appear at dinner but sent down a message to say that she had so bad a headache that she would not be able to appear downstairs that evening reginald carne did not play the part of host so well as usual at times he was gloomy and abstracted and then he roused himself and talked rapidly Lieutenant Gulston thought that he was seriously discomposed at the quarrel between his sister and his cousin, and he determined at any rate not to take the present occasion to carry about the intention he had formed of telling Reginald Carne that he was in love with his sister, and hoped he would have no objection to his telling her so, as he had a good income besides his pay as first lieutenant. When the men had been sitting silently for some time after wine was put on the table, he said, I think, Carne, I will not stop here tonight your sister is evidently quite upset with this affair and no wonder i shall feel myself horribly distraught and would rather come again some other time if you will let me if you will let your man put a horse in the trap i shall catch the ten o'clock train comfortably perhaps that would be best gulston i am not a very lively companion at the best of times and family quarrels are unpleasant enough for a stranger a few minutes later lieutenant gulston was on his way to the station he had much to think about on his way home in one respect he had every reason to be well satisfied with what he had heard as it left no doubt whatever in his mind that margaret carne had refused the offer of her cousin and that the latter had believed that he had been refused because she loved him charlie gulston of course she had not said so still she could not have denied it or her cousin's wrath would not have been turned against him
then he was sorry that such a quarrel had taken place as it would probably lead to a breach between the two families he knew margaret was very fond of her aunt and the girls then the violence with which ronald mervyn had spoken caused a great deal of uneasiness was it possible that a sane man would have gone on like that was it possible that the curse of the carnes was still working this was an unpleasant thought but that which followed was still more anxious certainly from the tone of his voice he had believed that ronald mervyn was on the point of using violence to margaret and if the man was really not altogether right in his head there was no saying what he might do as for himself he laughed at the threats that had been uttered against him mad or sane he had not the slightest fear of ronald mervyn but if as was likely enough this mad-brained fellow tried to fix a quarrel upon him in some public way it might be horribly unpleasant so unpleasant that he did not care to think of it he consoled himself by th hoping that when mervyn's first burst of passion had calmed down he might look at the matter in a more reasonable light and see that at any rate he could not bring about a public quarrel without margaret's name being in some way drawn into it that her cousin could not wish however angry he might be with her it was an unpleasant business if margaret accepted him he would take her away from all these associations it was marvellous that she was so bright and cheerful knowing this horrible story about that spanish woman and that there was taint in the blood that brother of hers too was enough to keep the story always in her mind the doctor was certainly right about him of course he wasn't mad but there was something strange about him and at times you caught him look looking at you in an unpleasant sort of way he is always very civil the lieutenant muttered to himself in fact wonderfully civil and hospitable and all that still i never feel quite at my ease with him if i had been a rich man and they had been hard up i should have certainly suspected that there was a design in his invitations and that he wanted me to marry margaret but of course that is absurd he can't tell that i have a penny beyond my pay and a girl like margaret might marry any one she liked at any rate out of devonshire perhaps he may not have liked the idea of her marrying this cousin of hers and no doubt he is right there and seeing as i dare say he did see that i was taken with margaret he thought it better to give me a chance than to let her marry mervyn i don't care a snap whether all her relations are mad or not i know that she is as free from the taint as i am but it can't be wholesome for a girl to live in such an atmosphere and the next time i go over i will put the question i meant to put this evening and if she says yes i will very soon get her out of it all and then the lieutenant indulged in visions of pretty houses with bright gardens looking over the sea and finally concluded that a little place near ride or cows would be in every way best and most convenient as being handy to portsmouth and far removed from devonshire and its associations i hope to get my step in about a year and then i will go on half pay i have capital interest and i dare say my cousin in the admiralty will be able to get me a dockyard appointment of some sort at portsmouth if not i shall of course give it up i am not going to knock about this world after i am married this train of thought occupied him until almost mechanically he left the train walked down to the water hailed a boat and was taken alongside his ship end of chapter three recording by matthew walker